Uh, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to see you. I'm very pleased to be here and uh, to have the opportunity of sharing the Word of God with you. I'd just like to add a little word of advice to one thing that Brian said. He said, if you are looking for the perfect assembly, you're probably going to be disappointed. But if you should, when you're looking for the perfect assembly, find the perfect assembly, I appeal to you, do not join it. <laughs> because you'd probably ruin it. So let's turn again to Romans chapter 1, please, and verse number 1. Romans 1 and 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means... Now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you, for I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purpose to come unto you but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, even as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And I'm sure God will add a blessing to the public reading of his own word. Uh, now, for those of you who were not here last night, and for those of you who were, but have since quite forgotten what we talked about, <laughs> we spent the time looking at the background 
of this epistle of Paul to the Romans. I do not intend going over it all again, but merely to say one or two things that will be helpful to those, I, I think, who perhaps were not here last evening. The Epistle to the Romans is a hugely important book of the New Testament. It is absolutely foundational. It is vital that every believer should have a, as, as great an understanding as is possible for them of this book, the Epistle to the Romans. It is all about the message of the gospel. It is all about God and his son. And as we shall see later in our message today, it brings to us not only great doctrinal truths, but it also brings to us practical help and information that is useful to us in our service for the Lord in our day and generation. Tyndale thought this epistle of Paul so important that he wrote the following. And although I quoted this last night, I do so again without apology. Said Tyndale, I think it is meet that every Christian man not only knows it, that is the epistle to the Romans, not only knows it by rote, but also exercises himself therein evermore continually. No man can read it too often, or study it too well. For the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it becomes. And the more it is searched, even more precious things are found in it. So great a treasure of spiritual truths lie therein, lie hidden therein. Therefore, let every man, without exception, exercise himself therein diligently and read it night and day continually until he be fully acquainted with it. That was Tyndall's advice concerning the epistle to the Romans that you and I have the privilege of looking at over this weekend. And so our first exhortation was and continues to be that each and every one of us should constantly and continually read this epistle so as to become more fully acquainted with it. And of course, in our readings on each occasion of the four messages that I shall give, we shall be reading this section so that at least by the end of it, we should be fully acquainted with the first 17 verses or a little bit more. We saw the author was Paul, written in AD 58 from Corinth to Rome, and uh, he's there telling them, explaining to them in this letter that he would, as the apostle to the Gentiles, who hitherto had miserably failed to visit Rome, now had a burning desire to do so, and that he would wish to launch out in the gospel from Rome to Spain, where the name of Christ was not yet named, in order that there might be fruit in the gospel there. We also saw that there is no record in the New Testament as to how the church at Rome was founded. It was certainly not by the Apostle Paul, neither do we believe it was by any other apostle, and we surmise that it might possibly have been founded by men and women who attended the day of Pentecost when it happened in Jerusalem, having been there for Passover celebrations, 
and they took the message back to Rome. Thus was an assembly founded and started to serve the Lord there. Or, if that does not fit in with the timings and the dates, then it is also possible, indeed I think highly likely, that the church in Rome was founded by centurions, seven of them brought to our attention in the New Testament in the Gospels and the Acts, and uh, these centurions are well spoken of in the New Testament. These Roman centurions served only in Israel for a brief time, and in due course each of them would head back home to Rome, taking with them the gospel that they had heard, the preaching of Peter, and some of them even met the Lord Jesus, and they would take this message back, and by one means or another, an assembly was founded and flourished in Rome. It consisted of Jews and Gentiles, which caused tension from time to time, and the Apostle Paul seeks to address that difficulty uh, by writing to them as he does. Uh, we also mentioned that he was perhaps writing, he was uh, trying to counter critics who were thought, it, uh, thought rather cynically that it was um, strange that the apostle to the Gentiles had never visited Rome, the seat of Gentile power, maybe they would suggest, because he was afraid to do so. So he writes along these lines, and it is from that point that we want to pick up. As, as I sometimes say when I do a little background information like that of yesterday's meeting, um, <clears throat> last night that took 40 minutes to say. Today it has taken four minutes. Uh, the difference is the gift of preaching. And um, so there you are. Maybe you are pleased now that you weren't here last night because you got the same information in four minutes rather than 40. So let us therefore now begin to look at one or two other aspects of this Paul's epistle to the Romans. Almost every commentator divides this epistle into three sections and gives it the same headings, which is rather unusual. Chapters 1 to 8 are described as being doctrinal. Chapters 9 to 11 are described as being dispensational, that is, all about Israel and their relationship with the Gentiles. And verses 12 to 16 are practical and bring to us our responsibilities in connection with God and the church and the world and the state and so on. We noticed that chapter 16, I forgot to say this, that chapter 16 was perhaps an addition to this epistle by Paul sending greetings to Rome. It's all about Rome, but I imagine that at least the first 15 chapters of this epistle were circulated rather more widely than to Rome alone. When we come to chapter 1, it again can divide simply into two. The first 17 verses speak to us about the righteousness of God, and from verse 18 to verse 32 speaks to us about the unrighteousness of man. And so it is that we shall be looking mainly at the first 17 verses, but depending on time and how we get along, we may delve a little bit into verse 18 and beyond. So I want to point out one or two things about this chapter to you. For example, this chapter is all about God. 
When you read through this chapter, chapter 1, you will know more about God than you've ever known before. Because, for example, it does something like this. In verse number 1, it speaks of the gospel of God. In verse number 4, it speaks of the Son of God. Verse number 3, sorry about having that the wrong way around, it speaks about the love of God. Verse number 9, it speaks about the witness of God. Verse 10, about the will of God. Verse 16, about the power of God. Verse 17, about the righteousness of God. Verse 18, about the wrath of God. Verse 23, about the glory of God. Verse 25, about the truth of God. And verse 32, about the judgment of God. So if you want to find out about God, read Romans chapter 1. It is all about him. Furthermore, in this epistle, as we shall see, there are many words that are used here. Chapter 1 is usually the seed plot for the rest of the epistle, uh, whichever epistle it is. And it is likewise that here in Romans, and a number of things come up that we shall mention as we come upon them. But let us now go to verse number 1, if we may. Romans 1 and verse 1, and it starts off, of course, with the name of the writer, Paul. Now, he was well known, of course, amongst the disciples in Jerusalem and in Antioch and throughout Greece and uh, Macedonia and other places that he had preached over 10 years of ministry around the Aegean Sea. But he had never visited Rome. But it seems as if he was also well known, at least known of, in Rome. So he introduces himself simply as Paul, incidentally using his Roman name rather than his old name of Saul. He then describes himself to them there as a servant of Jesus Christ. He might have said to them, of course, that he was in his day the leading apostle. He might have told them and explained to them that although he had never been to Rome, they had been missing a major Bible expositor. But he doesn't. Rather humbly and appropriately, he describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Because that's what they were. And it was important that even though the differences between Paul and the Romans may be minuscule, but seen by some to be major, that he should at least hold out an olive branch in their direction with apologies for not having shown up in the past. Of course, there might have been some cynics who would say uh, that they hadn't really missed him. I remember, it just comes to mind, uh, some years, quite a few years ago now, uh, going to a conference of a little assembly up in the valleys of South Wales. And... Uh, it was their 50th anniversary conference. And the brother who introduced, introduced me uh, to that meeting said it was my first visit there. He said, well, we are pleased today to have Roy Hill with us. He said, we have done well without him for 50 years. And, uh, but now he's here, then we shall have to uh, listen to him, I suppose. I think he was joking. <laughs> so here Paul says, look, I'm just like you. 
I am a bond servant, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Now, a bond slave was possessed in every sense of the word by his master, his owner. A bond slave really had no will of his own. A bond slave was controlled in every way by his master, even down to his marriage that would be arranged and organized by his master. And here now, Paul takes that humble position and says that he is no more than a bond slave of Jesus Christ, just like them. Let us reiterate this fact, that as far as service for the work of God is concerned, there are differences. Some may be gifted in different ways to others, but in the eyes of God, and it should be so in the eyes of the saints, that all brethren and all sisters are treated equally, with no looking up to full-time workers or preachers or ministers of the Word of God any more than looking up, as we have heard already, to faithful brethren and sisters in the local assembly. Paul says, I'm one of you. Whatever you might say about me, whatever accusations you might make, let me be clear that I am one of you and I'm with you as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Not only does he say that he is a bond slave of Jesus Christ, but he describes his situation as called to be an apostle. Called to be an apostle. Now you will probably notice in your Bible that the two little words, to be, are italicized. That, of course, is an indication that they are not there in the original. And they are not there in the original. So he's not really saying called to be an apostle, but he is saying called an apostle. He was an apostle. God did not call men to be an apostle or to be apostles. In other words, to become apostles. God called men and made them apostles there and then. It was a work of God in grace rather than, a, rather than a work of men in achievement that got them to that position of apostleship. And so he says, called an apostle. Of course, we know that apostle is a sent one, uh, somebody who has been given a specific task and job to do and has been tasked with fulfilling that job or whatever it is by their master. And so here Paul says that he is called an apostle. Perhaps a better word than called might be set apart to be an apostle. Set apart to be an apostle. Because, of course, the apostle Paul was, as you see later on perhaps, called on a number of occasions to this particular situation and position. I want you to see that he says, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Separated. I would like to say this to you. That the message of the gospel became a passion for Paul. 
It was the thing of highest priority in his Christian life. He saw the message of the gospel as being a wonderful truth from God and a wonderful offer of salvation to mankind. And he felt compelled to preach it on every occasion where he had that possibility of doing so. So his main theme was the preaching of the gospel message, which he will then now go on to describe in a moment or two. He describes it here, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Look what he says then in verse 2. Verse 2, you will find, is in parenthesis, but it is an explanation of the gospel of God. So what is it that is so vitally attractive about this gospel of God that Paul loved and preached and was committed to. He describes it this way. Which God had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, there are three things here that he mentions about the gospel. Number one, that the gospel had been prophesied in the Holy Scriptures. Well, that's one and two. Prophesied. In other words, there were prophets who spoke of the gospel Prophets like Isaiah, particularly, and others like David, like Moses, and so on. These men had sometimes unwittingly spoken prophecy about the message of the gospel. So this message of the gospel is not an after-the-event thing. When a problem arose, a gospel was invented to resolve that problem. This gospel was prophesied in the Holy Scriptures. But, of course, there were many things that were prophesied in the Holy Scriptures. And many prophets, some true and some false, who operated in the Holy Scriptures. So being prophesied is a good thing, a reassuring thing. But as I say to you, there were some prophecies that were never fulfilled because they were made by false prophets. But here, of course, is a prophecy by these great men of Old Testament days that was fulfilled to the glory of God because the gospel did come as promised in the person of Jesus Christ. So it is prophesied. Furthermore, it is a leading subject of the Holy Scriptures that would appeal to the Jews, perhaps a little bit more than to the Gentiles, but prophesied and written about in the Holy Scriptures. Now, interestingly, of course, in this letter, the scriptures are mentioned seven times. And uh, they, in, in, in chapter 1, uh, about the gospel. In chapter 4, about Abraham's righteousness. In chapter 9, about uh, the messages to Pharaoh. In chapter 10, about, um, uh, you know, Whoso, whosoever believeth shall not be ashamed, and so on. There, there are seven mentions of the scriptures in the epistle to the Romans. But there's something even better than that. This gospel was in the Holy Scriptures. This gospel was prophesied by prophets who were true prophets. But even better than that, says verse 2, that this gospel was promised by God. Promised by God. Now, a prophecy can fail. But a promise of God can never fail. And this gospel had been promised by God. Therefore, it was inevitable that at some future date, 
the gospel would arrive in the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul says now, here are some reasons I am passionately committed to preaching the gospel. Number one, it's in the Old Testament scriptures. Number two, it was prophesied by outstanding prophets in those scriptures. And number three, and best of all, it was promised by God. And so these things, these characteristics still stand today. And you and I should be delighted because of that. Now he wants to tell us more about the gospel, which he does in verse number three. He says this gospel is concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power. So the gospel is a message where the central person, you see in these verses you have the promise of the gospel, you have the person of the gospel, you have the preaching of the gospel, you have the product of the gospel, but this point that we are at now is telling us that the central theme and central person of the message of the gospel is his son, Jesus Christ. Any message of the gospel should have within it a statement about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that Paul mentions about the content of the gospel concerning his son. And you today, you and I today, in a world that does not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, must make much of his deity and declare it unashamedly that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Because I believe that without that understanding, it is not possible for a soul to come to Christ Therefore, as I say, let us not hide our light under any bushel, but declare openly that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Furthermore, it's about his Son, Jesus. So there you have the deity and the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ as being fundamental and central in the gospel. Of course, his deity and his humanity are two different things. But in the person of Jesus Christ, these two things mingled together so that one could never detect one from the other. Some people say, for example, that when the Lord Jesus Christ lay asleep in the boat, that that was his humanity. And when he stood up, and commanded the wind to cease and the waves to be calm, that was his deity. Now that's nicely boxed, but I don't think you can do that. A good illustration is this. You will know that when the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, they took his garments from them and they split them amongst themselves, the soldiers did, except for one garment, which we are told was made of one piece. And the lovely phrase that the authorized version uses is this, it was woven without seam. In other words, it was seamless. Therefore, it was not torn. I say to you that not only was his garment seamless, 
but everything about him was seamless, including deity and humanity. You simply cannot divide them. That's why one wrote later, great is the mystery of godliness. This mystery of God manifest in flesh, it is indeed mysterious because it is seamless. Everything about Jesus Christ is seamless. His righteousness and his mercy, his grace and his truth. You see what I'm driving at. Everything about him is seamless. And here the Apostle Paul, using this thought perhaps, he says, the gospel is concerning his son, Jesus. And any gospel message that does not contain something about the deity of Christ, that does not contain something about the humanity of Christ, is a poor gospel message. Says Paul, what is the gospel? It's concerning his son, Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he accomplished. But it's about more than that, this gospel in which you and I rejoice and by which we have been saved. It is about, it is about his son, concerning his son, Jesus. And then he says, Christ. And the idea of the word Christ, of course, means the sent one, the promised one, and the sent one. Jesus Christ, and then we have that lovely phrase, which delights my heart when I read it, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Brethren and sisters today, while it is an amazing thing that God sent his son and they called him Jesus, I imagine it is an even greater thing, a greater revelation, a greater joy, that his son, Jesus Christ, is our Lord, our owner, our master, to whom we should be born slaves with a burning desire in our hearts to serve him in wh with whatever it takes and wherever he might decide that we should be. Then just to elaborate a little bit on that in verse 3, he also adds, he says, His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. I would prefer to say which was born of the seed of David according to the flesh because I don't think he was ever really made anything. The only occasion I think that he was made something was when he was made sin. For us. But here he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So he has already spoken of his deity by mentioning the name Jesus. Here he elaborates on it and says, His son Jesus, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And of course he was. He was David's son, or as someone has said, great David's greater son according to the flesh. And so it is, there is put for us here in no uncertain terms that our Lord Jesus Christ, as we have heard already when he was here on earth, was a man. And I reiterate that in glory today, he is still a man because he never lost that manhood, 
but amazingly and wonderfully entered glory with that manhood. And so it is concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And now look at verse number four. I suppose I should say made of the seed of David. Um, that is not only his incarnation. I mean, your mind and mine might, when we say that, immediately go to Bethlehem and say, yes, we can see it there. But actually, incarnation is not only Bethlehem. Incarnation is the conception of Christ by the Holy Spirit, the birth of Christ as Mary gave birth, the life of Christ as he lived in uh, uh, undercover, as it were, for 30 years, the ministry of Christ in the gospel for three and a half years, the death of Christ upon the cross, and his exodus back into heaven itself. That is the incarnation. It's all about him. And it's everything about him. Incarnation is not only birth at Bethlehem, it is God manifest in all the years of his flesh. As a boy of 12, it was manifest. As a man in the carpenter shop in Nazareth, I believe it would have been manifest. Certainly in his years of public ministry. It was manifest, and thank God it is still manifest. God manifest in flesh, made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And then about his deity, of course. And now he says in verse 4, and declared to be. Now the word declared really here means marked out or shown to be exceptionally. Declared to be what? The Son of God with power. Here today, the gospel message is not only about a message of a man called Jesus who came from heaven and lived here on earth and died. The message of the gospel is also about the Son of God. And here the gospel message, as it were, marks him out, shows him to be in his divine nature, the declared to be the Son of God with power. Now, it's better read, not the Son of God with power, but the Son of God in power. Because, of course, he did have power. Uh, do you remember he was asked by what power or on whose authority do you do these things? But he not only had with these things he did were with power, but here now it's also better described as the Son of God in power. Because, remarkably, at his resurrection, God raised him from the dead. At his resurrection, he himself raised himself from the dead. And at his resurrection, he was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit from the dead. A bit like the creation of the world. In the beginning, God. And of course, the God of creation was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in the new creation, when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, the same three were actively involved in it. God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Holy Spirit. So declared to be the Son of God in power, says verse 4. According to the Spirit of holiness. Now, what is the Spirit of holiness? I think many would say that the Spirit of holiness is the Holy Spirit, because that would sort of fit in with what we're talking about. I've just mentioned the, the Trinity. But I think here in Romans 1 and verse 4, the spirit of holiness is much more Christ's own spirit. He was, he was human. Like you and me, he had spirit, soul, and body. His own spirit as distinct from the Holy Spirit. And so he is, we are having suggested to us here that he was declared to be set, marked out, shown to be different, shown to be the Son of God in power, in connection with the Spirit of holiness, that's his own spirit, by the resurrection from the dead. Now, I said that his incarnation meant more than his birth. And I say also to, also to you as well that this phrase, by the resurrection from the dead, is not what you might think it is. You would imagine from this, as it were, that when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the third day, that's what's being talked about here. Well, I suggest to you that it's not. It's part of it, of course, an important part of it. So, if you think about this, think about it in this way. This verse is better read like this. I ask you to cast your eye in its direction in your Bible and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. You say, well, what's the difference? The difference is this. That the deity of Jesus Christ is observed not only in his own resurrection, but in the, rec in the resurrection of all men everywhere at all times. When, for example, the Lord comes back again, and men and women, believers, respond to the shout and come out of the tombs, that resurrection of the dead is a declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. So he is the God. He is the Savior who is able to raise dead ones, not only himself. You see, of course, there were others in the New Testament who were privileged to be raised from the dead. There was the widow of Nain's son. There was Lazarus. There was the little girl of 12. There was Dorcas. They were all privileged to be raised from the dead. But Jesus Christ, his life demanded that he be raised from the dead. And of course, so he was. So, in his humanity, we discover that, that he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. In connection with his deity, 
He is set apart from everybody else, marked out, declared to be Son of God in power by the resurrection of dead ones. So that his power is not only power in connection with his own resurrection, but the power of the resurrection of the dead, whether they be believers or unbelievers. The resurrection of unbelievers to appear before the judgment seat of Christ will be a definitive statement in connection with the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Resurrection power confirms deity. And of course, I like the way this little section ends. If you look at the beginning of verse 3, you see it says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David. Now, many of the um, uh, texts and many of the commentators, I think perhaps rightly, take out the phrase from verse 3, Jesus Christ our Lord. They take it out. So that verse 3 reads like this, concerning his son, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, that makes excellent sense, does it not? Without the phrase, Jesus Christ our Lord. So what can we then do with the phrase, Jesus Christ our Lord? Well, some of the texts and many of the commentators reinsert it at the end of verse 4. So that verses 3 and 4 read like this. Concerning his son, which is made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, even Jesus Christ our Lord. And today, I would certainly say amen and hallelujah to that, because these great acts of incarnation, of perfection of life, of sinlessness, and of the resurrection, these declare not only he is the Son of God, but these declare that this is Jesus Christ, our Lord. How wonderful. Of course, I would like you to see just for a moment or two, and then we're finished. He says, by whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now, you've heard the phrase, <clears throat> the royal we. And... Uh, Sometimes folks use the word we when they mean I. That's what Paul is doing here. Sure, he had received grace, and the Roman Christians had received grace. So he could say, by whom we have received grace. Full stop. That would be true. But that's not what he says. Look at what he says. He says, by whom we have received grace and apostleship. They were not apostles. He was. So a better rendering of this verse is, by whom I have received grace and apostleship. Or even better. The word grace indicates gift. And what he is saying is this. By whom, that is by Jesus, the risen, glorified Lord, by whom I have received the gift of apostleship. 
You might criticize me, says Paul. You might say that I don't want to come. You might raise against me all sorts of obstacles and so on. But I tell you this, I'm an apostle. Not because of who I am, nor was I receiving it from any man, as he explains in another place. But I have received it. I did nothing to receive it, nothing to deserve it. I received it as a gift of apostleship from the hand of your risen Lord. And so I think, don't you, that uh, as Paul introduces himself here to the Romans, he's thinking about the gospel. He's telling us it's all about Jesus. In his life, his incarnation, and his resurrection declared to be the Son of God in power. Brethren and sisters, let you and I rejoice today that this may amazing message of the gospel is all about him, his incarnation, his humanity, his deity, and his resurrection. And every time in the Bible you read of someone being raised from the dead, whether it be in the past or the future, just remember that that is an incontradictable statement that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. May God bless his word and uh, thank you for your patience in listening.